Hey, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Um, thank you for this season. Thank you for the time that we can just celebrate that you have begun to change everything in an extraordinary series of events. You entered this world and you just radically altered all of history through your life, through your death, through your resurrection, through sending your spirit. And yet, Lord, we still live in a world that is um, already changed and not yet changed, and it's messy, and it's just a great thing for us to be able to take a few moments and remember and bask in the, the love that you have shown and to say thank you and to praise you for it. So as we look into your word, I pray that you would just extend that heart further. Would you work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Christmas time is supposed to be the time when everything's all nice and tidy and beautiful and hallmarky, and, and I've been thinking about the fact that, that the world's a pretty messed up place. You know, there's things that shouldn't be that way, but they are. Uh, I, I went over there and I got a cup of coffee a minute ago and I saw someone walking by with a chocolate donut and I'm thinking that would be great, but God didn't put all the calories in kale, he put them in chocolate donuts and I think that's messed up myself. <laughs> um, amen. <laughs> amen, they're a power food. Um, I got a call from my daughter, my younger daughter, oh, a couple weeks before Thanksgiving and she said, Dad, I'm, I'm trying to stay really calm, but I went into the grocery store to get some things actually for church because she's helping to do some things for kids ministry and I came back out and my car's not here and uh, I've checked around I'm like well did you look everywhere <laughs> look under you know I don't know but it's not there and sure enough someone stole her car which is actually my car and uh, you know that's messed up then we file the police report and actually my wife and I were going to go out on a date and instead I spent the time standing in the parking lot waiting for the cop to come. That's messed up. And then someone, uh, I don't know, they looked like they were living in the car because when it was recovered there was a whole bunch of extra stuff in it but some of the stuff we were hoping was in it wasn't in it and you know it's just, it's just messed up. Went to Arizona for Thanksgiving and that was great to be with family but my, my mother-in-law was talking about this mysterious occurrence because uh, for a period of time, she'd been going into her backyard and there'd be trash bags just laying in the backyard. Some of them exploded and wide open and she's wondering the mystery of the trash bags and she starts investigating. It's kitchen trash. It's not her kitchen trash. Where's it coming from? And uh, eventually they find out that th their house backs up to an alleyway, which is where the trash can, the big one for the neighborhood is. And then there's another house on the other side the backyard, and the mom of the house on the other side was telling her teenage son to take the trash out, and so he did, and uh, just hurled it right over into my mother-in-law's yard, because he was too lazy to open the gate and dump it, in. you know, that, that's messed up. Sometimes it's funny, and sometimes it's not. I was uh, listening to a story, anonymous story, um, on the radio just before Thanksgiving, and it was this veteran cop from somewhere in New England, and he was anonymous, so they didn't tell us where, but you could tell he was from New England because of his accent and also just what he was describing. It was around this time of the year, and it was really, really cold, and they got called to a house to um, help out with a problem, and when they get there, they find out it's a young owner, just a little bit older than they are. He and his partner are brand new rookies, and they're just learning the job. 
And so this young guy, young professional guy, they find out later he's an attorney and pretty successful. And he says, can you uh, get the squirrel out of my attic? Like, we're cops. No, we're not going to do that. But then the door opens just wider, and they see his wife, who is drop-dead gorgeous. They've never seen anyone quite like her. And so, why, sure, we'll get the squirrel out of your attic. (laughs) Suddenly, everything changed, and that's messed up because they're looking at it all wrong. And they go up to the attic, which is one of those pull-down ladders, you know, and the, the cop who's narrating his story from 30 years prior uh, is saying you could hear the squirrel running back and forth in the attic until we opened the, you know, the one of those drop-down ladders. When we opened that, everything got quiet, and I suddenly realized I was going to have to stick my head through that hole. And so the owner, the guy, is standing off to one side, and his partner's standing immediately behind him as he's going up the steps, and he's got his big heavy mag light, you know, and I guess he's right-handed, I'm left-handed. So he's got it in his right hand, and he's uh, going to pop up over the top and and turn on the light and he's sure the squirrel is cowering in some corner and when he works up the courage to to pop into the attic turn on the light the squirrel is in full vampire pose like six inches from his face and he freaks out and ah and and lets the flashlight drop which is the owner of the house is just looking right up and so this four d-cell mag light lands right on his nose and just bursts open, blood's gushing everywhere. Meanwhile, the cop falls backward and pancakes out on his partner. So it's this total Keystone Cops moment. And this guy, the, the owner, is just gushing blood all over everything, and the two cops are laying there like fools. And then, to make matters worse, the squirrel just goes, ta-dum, 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 out and into the house somewhere. And as he's laying there on top of his partner still, trying to get up, The partner says, I think we ought to find the squirrel. Then they hear a scream from the wife who's still downstairs. Found it. And they go downstairs. And in the living room, it's a cold, cold night. There's a blazing fire. And it was going to be a nice, quiet, romantic evening. And they have like silk pillows set out on the sofa and flutes of champagne. And it's just this wonderful moment. And it's all been ruined. And the squirrel has run under the sofa. And the cop realizes, hey, you know... um, if we, if we move the sofa over into the corner, we can block off two sides, and maybe we can kind of get the squirrel out. And so they do, because the squirrel keeps cover under the sofa, and, and he winds up in the corner, and they're feeling pretty good, and, and they say to the woman, can, can we have a box? She's still in shock because of her deformed husband who's bleeding all over the place. And she says, yeah, we just moved in. I'll go get a box just the perfect size to cover the end of the sofa. And he's thinking, great, I'll just take my nightstick and just kind of scoot along under the sofa. Hopefully, it won't devour my hand. And, uh, and it's working. He can hear the, the squirrel just kind of skittering along under the sofa. And just, just inches before he's going to work it into the box, the squirrel decides he's not going to have any more of this and goes running straight out, straight into the fire. And... Uh, catches fire, and turns around and runs back under the sofa. <laughs> so so there's, there's like sparks from the squirrel's tail as he's going along and smoke, and pretty soon the, there's smoke coming out from under the sofa, and, and they, can, they can hear that the flames are starting to catch fire on the sofa. And without thinking, he and his friend, the, the two cops, they flip the sofa over to get at it, which immediately lets all the oxygen in, and it bursts into flame. 
And now they take those nice silk pillars and they try to knock out the... And, and by the time everything is done, there's a burned out sofa. There's smoke, dis, you know, destruction throughout the house. The, the squirrel is actually just this smear of, of burned out gristle on the bottom of the sofa. And, and the owner of the house is there bleeding into his towel. And, and the wife looks around and just bursts into tears. What have you done? What have you done? What have you done? All, all they did was try to do their job. That's what they did. And, and the, the owner looks at him, he says, just shaking his head, he said, I, I, I can't think of anything you actually did wrong, but I'm not going to say thank you. <laughs> and, and the cop went out and he said, that's the last time I ever made that mistake, but I've made a whole bunch more since then. And, you know, it's, it's a funny story unless you're left there with a burned out couch and thousands of dollars of smoke damage and maybe a deformed husband. And it's just, it seems to be a universal experience, whether it's a stolen car or trash bags in the backyard or a good intended action gone awry or something more serious than that, a problem in a family or um, a hardship that comes into my life. Um, the world is a messed up place. And as hard as we try, uh, it's, it, it's not working. As much as we'd like it to be different, it's not. And that reality is universal. And we have to think about that for a minute. Because if, if it's a universal reality that the world's messed up and we all have messed up things going on, we have to look beyond circumstances. Can't just be circumstantial because my circumstances are different than yours. And yours are different than somebody who lives in New England. And we're all radically different than some villager in Nigeria or some South Sea Islander. And yet it's universal experience. The world's messed up. And that must point to something deeper than just the circumstances. And when we come to Christmas, it's important that we would look deeper than just, just this nice little story um, and, and it's important that we would look at what God's doing on, on a grand scale. And if you have a Bible, if you'd open to Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at the story of the birth of, of John the Baptist, a story that's often not given much attention at the Christmas season, but it's a story that brings the whole cosmic um, agenda, the whole cosmic time scale into our personal experience, our everyday lives. And I want to actually spend some time this morning just looking at the story, the bigger story, and how Christmas and what God has done is intersecting that. And we're going to look at um, a response that we should try to cultivate in our own lives by His grace as, as those that want to walk in step with Jesus. So if you have your Bibles open to Luke 1, Start in verse 57. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. This is really significant. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know. But if not, Elizabeth is elderly. She's like a pregnant grandma. Only she never had kids, so she's not a grandma. She's just an elderly woman with a baby. It's a miraculous birth, and it's something God has started uh, a new thing. 
He's, he's not spoken or said anything to anyone for hundreds of years, and then suddenly an angel shows up to Elizabeth's elderly husband when he's doing his work as the priest and says, you're going to have a baby. He doesn't believe it, and so he, the angel says, then you're going to just have to watch in silence, and this is going to come to pass. And so this is nine months later, and it's come to pass. It's no wonder all the neighbors show up On the eighth day, verse 59, they came to circumcise the child. They would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And he's really emphatic, actually. This would actually be better translated in the Yoda version. Hmm, John, his name is. Hmm? He puts John first. It's like, this is emphatic. He is, in fact, he's not even saying his name will be. It's his name is. This guy's already John. That was decided by the angel when he appeared in the temple. And, and don't, don't try to change that. Elizabeth and Zechariah are emphatically just following God and his instructions. So he's named John. And they all wonder at that. And immediately Zechariah's mouth was open and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now just stop there for a second because we need to, we need to look at this story at, at two levels. There's a, st- there's a level of what's actually going on, but what we really need to back up and say is, why is Luke telling it to us this way? And he ends this first section with a question. And the question basically invites us to enter in with the same kind of question. And the specific is, is what will this child be? But I think the bigger idea is just what is God doing? What's going on here? Everyone's looking, seeing strange things are happening, amazing things are happening. This elderly couple, no way they could have a baby, and they've got this baby, and they're not following any pattern that we would expect. They're emphatic, this baby's name is John, and, and, and now suddenly dad can speak. Nine months he's been quiet. Now, it's not just like a silent guy. Some of you wives are convinced that's your husband nine months, and you still can't get him to talk, right? He, ha- he can't say a word at all. In fact, the idea appears to be that he's also um, unable to hear. Because they, either, either he's unable to hear or his friends are just stupid Americans, right? Because they come to him and they make signs to him. And, and if, if he could actually hear, then he would, he would ask for the, the, the board to write on, like a little Etch-a-Sketch thing, wax on a, on a board. And the first thing he would say is, I can hear, stupid, I just can't talk. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. So apparently God's got him in this kind of sensory deprivation chamber for nine months. I can't hear. I can't talk. All I can do is watch. All I can do is look and think and think and think and think. That's where Zechariah is. And Luke is inviting us into asking the question, what's God doing? What's going on here? Trying to draw us in to the drama of what's happening and maybe to put ourselves in their place. Now, 
as we look at Zechariah, he's doing a lot of thinking. He's one, according to the earlier part of the chapter, both he and his wife were faithful followers of God. They were ones who were looking for Messiah to come. They were ones who were seeking to live righteously under the covenant. They were ones who um, were the, the best of their people. And um, it's not a good time. It's not a good time at all. They don't have freedom. They have a king who's on the throne who's kind of a half-breed king, which um, it's not just a matter of a mixed-race kind of deal. That's something we don't have any problem with. They would have. We don't, and nobody should ever have. But it's not just that. It's just this guy's not really Jewish. It's kind of, he's a Jewish pretender, Herod. And, and actually, he's a king pretender, too. He's not really the king. He's this puppet. Now, he's a really powerful puppet. But he's this puppet for Caesar Augustus, who's ruling the whole world. And so here they are, these faithful Jewish people who are part of a nation that is supposed to be honoring God like they are. And they have a king who's not legit, who's actually a puppet to a foreign pagan despot. They don't have real freedom. And actually a whole huge part of the population of the country is completely compromised, sold out, just kind of doing life and not really caring a whole lot about what God wants. And then you have Zechariah and Elizabeth trying to live faithfully in the midst of that. And God suddenly breaks through, and Zechariah is suddenly put into an enforced timeout for nine months where he just can think. That's all he can do. What does he think of? Sometimes I think we, we would love to be slowed down enough to just be forced to be quiet and think, and then, then we think a little bit more about that, and we get scared of scared of that and we don't really we don't really we distract ourselves Zechariah can't do that he's just got to be thinking and in this next section he gives the fruit of his thoughts if you want to look just at the first verse of the next section his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying and then this whole next section is the fruit of what he's been thinking about what he's been pondering it's a it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to be sure but it's it's what Zechariah has been processing. And I think what Zechariah is thinking of is kind of the same thing I was talking about. Everything's messed up. And it doesn't matter, good intentions or no, it's messed up. Wherever you go, it's messed up. The world is broken. Everything's a problem. And where's God in all of this? And as, as a person of faith, he's got to think back through what, what's really going on in the world. And Christmas is a time for us to back up, slow down, and get a bigger perspective and say, wait, what's really going on in the world? Christmas is that touchdown point where God re-entered the world in a fresh and powerful way. He never let go of control ultimately, but he let the world stumble along in shadow and mess as he was working his will out, and finally Jesus comes into the world to change everything. And that that message is much bigger than just a, a, a Christmas card or even how we tend to look in a very personal, privatized um, understanding of God and his work for me. 
my personal salvation, my personal need. Here's what God, I need. Here's what I want. And Zechariah has so much time on his hands and so much that he can't do that he just kind of thinks deeply. And I, I want to look back on some of the things that he doubtless grabbed hold of so that we have the whole story as we look at Christmas, so that we get the whole story. And I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of walk you through some familiar things. I'll read a verse here and there, and if you're, if you're quick, you can follow along with the verses. If not, you may just want to take the little paper you've got and just write the references down and look later. But Zechariah is taken back to the beginning. If, if, when we read this section, you'll see he's, he's looking back. He's looking back to God's faithfulness. He looks back to Abraham 2,000 years approximately prior to him. And Abraham ties into the beginning because Abraham is, is God's step to change what's been messed up from the beginning. So Zechariah is taking in the whole scope of what God's doing. And that's what the Christmas story has to be understood in light of. We start out in a garden. A garden that is cultivated, that is beautiful, that is safe, that is rich and vibrant. Where we live in harmony with each other and with God. We're created in his image. And we're given a role to play to, on his behalf, develop this world. When we look at the Adam and Eve story, we, we, we make a mistake, I think, sometimes because we think of the command of God and we think of the singular command of God, the ethical command, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's where we focus. That's the sixth command reported for us. It's important. Ethics is important. Morality is important. But God's got a much bigger agenda in mind when he looks at you and me. He didn't just create us so we'd live a good life as far as morally pure. And he starts by blessing them and saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to rule over the earth. I want you to subdue the earth. Those are all commands that say, I have a purpose for you. I've created this world And it's a wild place. It's a good place, but it's a wild place. And I'm going to plant within that wild place this cultivated garden of safety and the presence of God. In fact, in Genesis 2, when it talks about God putting Adam in the garden to take care of it, the language used of him taking care of it is the same language used for the priests ministering in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It's like this is the place where you and I will meet together. And from this place, as as my representatives, you're going to go out and you're going to subdue the earth. You're going to shape it and you're going to bring beauty and goodness to a greater and greater expression. Everything's good, but it's wild and it's waiting there for you with me to go make it better. And then there's that really quirky verse at the end of Genesis 2 talking about Adam and Eve. And it says right at the end of that chapter... The man and his wife were naked and unashamed, which is one of those verses that makes junior high boys giggle and maybe makes a lot of us scratch our heads, but it's a very critically important verse because in Genesis 3, things have shifted. Adam and Eve have stopped willingly bringing themselves under God. They have said, we get to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. And something radical happens, and we find in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve are now ashamed and hiding, and they're trying to cover up their nakedness. And we read that so quickly, we go, well, of course, we totally miss the point. The population of the earth is two. 
husband and wife. In Genesis 2, it wasn't shameful, and in Genesis 3, it wasn't shameful. The shame is not in their nakedness. The shame is in their brokenness. And the fundamental reality is that the the biggest problem in my life is not my circumstances. It's me. And throughout all of human history, we tend to focus on the circumstances. And we're going to see as Zechariah unpacks what God's doing, he's going to say, wait a minute. The bigger problem is not the circumstances. He's got lots of circumstantial problems. The bigger problem is us. And the story of Christmas is saying, I'm changing everything. But don't get hung up on the fact that the world's still a mess. That things go sideways. Because it's not me fixing circumstances. It's me starting by fixing you. And circumstances follow. And because of Adam and Eve's sin, you're familiar with this in Genesis 3, they're they're exiled from the garden. They're sent out into the wild separated now from God. And the world is no longer a safe place. And the wild is going to run amok because the ones who were supposed to shape it for good have separated themselves from God. And someone else has rushed in. Read 1 John 2 and 5. It's really clear among many other places. It's Satan rushed into the role that was supposed to be ours, and now he's distorting everything, and the world's a ruined place, filled with ruined people. But God doesn't turn his back on that, and that's the first verse that I'm sure you're familiar with, and you can follow along if you want to. I'll just read it to you. It's Genesis 3.15. God makes this promise at the very beginning. He says, I will put enmity, speaking to the snake, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We don't know how much Adam and Eve would have fully understood, but they would have understood this is momentous, this is significant. We know, after having watched the story unfold, this is the first prophecy about Jesus. There's going to come a descendant who's going to change everything at painful cost to himself. And they're sent out of the garden. But God hasn't turned his back on them. And so the story of Genesis unfolds. And it really, the first few chapters are just an unfolding of how will we, fallen people, respond? Are we going to focus on us and our will and how we want life to be and kind of make our way? That's what typically happens. Or are we going to humble ourselves and trust God? And the entire first section of Genesis is a series of contrasts saying, look at the choices, look at the choices, look at the choices. And the choice is not about circumstances, it's about your heart. So the first contrast is between Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel because God accepts Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. And we know from the New Testament it was was an issue of the heart. It was an issue of Cain's heart. The next contrast is between Cain and descendants from Seth who begin to call on the name of the Lord and and, and Cain is is hardened and he winds up being banished. The next contrast is between everyone in the world whose thoughts and intentions are only evil continually and this man Noah that God has preserved. He's preserving his remnant who will trust him. Noah trusted God. The next contrast is the one it's leading up to because it's after the flood, 
people who are supposed to spread out over the earth and make a name for God instead gather together to make a name for themselves and they build the Tower of Babel. And God brings judgment. And the contrasting story is the one that Zechariah ties into in our passage that we're going to see in a minute. It's the story of a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is somebody God's chosen out to say, I'm at work, and I want to start with you, and I will bless Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I will bless all those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and from you will come blessing for everyone. And it's talking ultimately about God's work through the Jewish people to bring about his restoration and ultimately Jesus. There's a promise. And in the midst of the promise, there's a problem. In Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, but your family's going to spend 400 years in a foreign land. But then I'll deliver them, and that's what happens in Exodus And the story of Moses at the burning bush, he's there and God shows up and God calls him aside and says, Moses, I've seen the oppression. I remember my promise and I'm going to use you to deliver them. And so they're freed out of the land of Egypt. God's at work. It's a messed up world and yet he's still at work. He's he's working eternally to accomplish his purposes. And Abraham, I mean, and Zechariah is tying into all of this. When we read this, it'll, it'll become obvious. There's so many different allusions and different touch points that he's tying into this big story. And the end of the book of Deuteronomy has these words in it. Let me just read these to you. Deuteronomy 31. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be therefore a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, Even today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. He's just given the law. Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, if you will. And he's he's actually recorded this book in such a way to make it really clear. This is about will you have God as your king? And they've just said yes. Yes, we'll have him as our king. And this becomes the treaty. And he says, okay, file it with the Ark of the Covenant because the treaty's filed with their God. And, and you call witnesses. In this case, I call the sun and the earth. I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses to say we're going to keep this. But I know you guys aren't going to do it because you're messed up. It's a messed up world. And in the midst of that whole story, that birth of the nation, birth of a kingdom, there's this one little enigmatic verse that Zechariah appears to pick up in our story. And it comes in Numbers 24. There's this guy named Balaam who's giving a prophecy. And he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That's a promise that one day, God's descendant, God's king, God's representative will be restored, but not yet. And so the people of Israel go on in this covenant relationship where they're supposed to be the kingdom of God. God's their king, and yet they don't like that. And so we have this verse in 1 Samuel when he's old and he's having his sons become the judges over Israel. Everyone rejects that. They say, no, we don't want that. Appoint for us a king. This is 1 Samuel 8.5. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
but this, this pleased Samuel. And he said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they are not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. They think, hey, if we just have a king, if we're just like all the other nations around us, if you just address these circumstantial issues, everything would be great. And God's saying, I am, I am your king and I'm ruling right now and you're rejecting me and there's a heart problem driving this. And he says to Samuel, let him do it. He's ready to, for them to have a king. He already promised them one, but they're, they're going to snatch from him what he's already promised to give. It's a big problem that we have historically. And so it's not off to such a great start with the king Saul. Then David does better, and Solomon starts off well and then starts to fall apart, and then from there everything falls apart. And by the time we get to Isaiah, one of the prophets, hundreds of years after Samuel, here's how his book starts. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. That's, those are the witnesses to the kingdom covenant that were called in Deuteronomy 31. And it's like a court of law. He's saying, all right, call the witnesses. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They're a sinful nation. They've forsaken the Lord. He goes on to indict them. Because they're not following with God. They're too wrapped up in their own lives, and they're failing. And they're failing because we always fail. The best of us fail if God's not at work. And so he's walking us through this grand history story to say there's a bigger problem than the circumstances around you and it has to do with your very heart. And time after time I've worked and time after time you've failed. And in Isaiah, as he's, as he's coming down on him, as he's saying here's what God's judgment's going to be, he says this, they're going to live in darkness and gloom and anguish. They'll be thrust into darkness. But he starts talking about a child to be born. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know that verse. That's this passage. Just before that it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Everything's failing, but I'm not failing you. I'm still walking with you. I have a plan, and I'm going to send a Savior to change everything. And he's going to bring light instead of darkness. A little bit later in the book of Isaiah, he gives another promise. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. Okay, let me just kind of recap so we're all together here, because I think it's the grand story that Zechariah has in mind. When Adam and Eve threw away what God offered them and ruined everything, God didn't run away from us. But the number one thing that has to change is not the world, it's us. He's got to start there. And he's been working with people who will have faith and who will trust, but until he radically changes us, it just doesn't last. And so Moses comes along and they follow during Moses' time. And Joshua succeeds him and they follow during Joshua's time and then everything goes south. Then a good king arises, which they 
demanded a king when they shouldn't have, but a good king arises, everything's fine, and then everything goes south. And finally, the kingdom itself falls apart, and God sends prophets to try to call them back to their covenant to say, live the way you were supposed to live. And when Isaiah comes along, he says, I'm calling the witnesses because you violated everything we said. You're failing as my kingdom, and you need to know that this is not going to be the way that you want, and there's judgment coming, but I want you to understand, I have not abandoned you. I still have an answer. I still have a solution, and he is still to come. And the darkness will fade, and it will be lifted, and you'll be able to walk in light. And a branch will spring forth from the dead stump, and suddenly everything will shift. And the last verses, probably the last words anyone heard from God before Zechariah, the last verses of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. There's a promise, and then God falls silent, and that's where the New Testament story, that's where our story is intersected. And so Zechariah is interrupted in the temple when Gabriel shows up and he says, I want you to name him John, this baby that's going to come. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's happening. God's doing what he promised. And Zechariah doesn't believe it. So God says, you just need to sit and be quiet. And he is, for nine months. Finally, the baby comes, and the first words out of his mouth are praise. And here's what he is, he's discerned during that time, back in our chapter. Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 67, and here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Here's the Messiah. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's just thinking straight out of Malachi. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. That word sunrise literally just means springing up. It can be of a branch that springs out of a stump. Or it can be a star that rises out of Judah. And in Zechariah's day, that's the way the language was used. And Zechariah is saying, hey, there's something really big going on here. We didn't just have a baby. I mean, that's pretty cool. We're really old and we're having a baby. That's pretty amazing. It's like, whoa, whoa. All of our history, all of our history, everything I've been thinking about, everything I've been pondering, everything I've been forced to just kind of sit in, God is bringing it together. Through Balaam, he said, there's going to be this 
this star that will rise out of Judah. Through Isaiah, he said there's going to be a branch that comes from the stump. That's happening now. Through Malachi, he said he would send a prophet beforehand to prepare the way and turn the hearts. And that's happening now. That's you, son. And then it says, verse 79, this is to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's Isaiah 9. To guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness till the day of his public appearance to Israel. Zechariah is doing something that is vitally important for all of us to learn. The longer I live, the longer I follow Jesus, the more I see how important this is. When my daughter calls me and says, Dad, somebody stole the car. That's really a frustrating moment. When things aren't going the way I want them to, when I'm wrestling with disappointment, when I'm wrestling with uh, struggles, when I'm wrestling with failure, when I'm wrestling with things that I'm just convinced they're not supposed to be this way, it's hard. When somebody fails me, when things aren't going as they should, when the world doesn't work, it's very easy for me to just focus on that circumstance, that moment, and really struggle. Zechariah has had the gift of some time and some space to say, you know what, everything that's going on here, including this inability to hear or speak for nine months, don't miss that. That's a trauma that God brings on him. That's one of those hard things. And every one of those things is caught up into something bigger. And Zechariah looks at his life top down. Zechariah says, I'm not the hero. I'm the sidekick. Zechariah understands that a life well lived is one where I'm striving to get best supporting actor in my own story. Because there's something God is doing in the world that is much bigger than me and much bigger than my circumstances. And he works all that stuff together to accomplish this greater purpose. And the story of Christmas brings that all together. And in this moment, Zechariah is saying, wow, we've got a son. I want you to notice a couple of things. First off, this is a moment he could really crow about, right? We have a son in a culture that that's that's the thing. He's lived his whole life without this, kind of shamed. He'd be strutting around going, yeah, I still got it. There's my boy, right? This is his son's birthday party, if you will. Who at their son's birthday party spends the whole time talking about somebody else's son? Who's not even there? If you look carefully at these verses, this prophecy, there's, there's 12 verses and only two of them are about John the Baptist. Zechariah spends 10 verses talking about what God's doing in Jesus and only two talking about his own son. And when he talks about his own son, look at what he does. He says, let me, let me tell you, son, where you fit into this other story. Okay, my boy, here's how you're going to fit. You're going to be the prophet to prepare the way for this other boy. That is very unfatherly. Right? This is his moment to really strut. And you know he's proud. You know, he's bursting with joy, but he's also looked at life through this bigger lens. And he says, wow, this is cool. We're caught up in something big here. We're caught up in something God's doing. 
And, 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 and John, I want you to fit into it this way. Or look at Zechariah's own doubtless heart. If you look in those first verses, it talks about Jesus being a horn of salvation, mighty warrior that's going to defend. That's like the horns of a bull, powerful, strong. It's going to defend and, and attack and protect and establish. And Jesus is three months old at this time, which means he's about one ounce. So we've got a one ounce warrior he's talking about here. Not even yet out of the womb. So he's, he's saying this has already happened, even though it's still future. But it's what he's looking forward to. It's so certain, I'm, I'm banking on it, God's going to do it, and I'm, I'm there. And he talks all about this deliverance from our enemies. I think somebody that's living in a land where they've got a horrible king who's not really their king, and they're under this oppressive regime, is going to really think a lot in very practical terms. Deliverance from this circumstance. That's Zechariah's heart, no doubt. And he looks at all those things and says, that's, that's so certain, it's almost as if it's real, but it hasn't happened yet. And son, you're going to prepare the way, and here's what's really important. Here's what's coming immediately, right? You, child, will be called, verse 76, the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, and here's what people really need, right? That first part is, here's all the circumstances I want you to correct, God. But here's what we really need. Here's what's next. I want you to go and give knowledge of salvation to people in the forgiveness of their sins. Our problem is not our circumstances. It's us. That's where God has to start to really change things. He's going to visit us from on high, this sunrise, and he's going to give light. Yeah, deliverance. Yeah, mighty victory. That's still to come. We still don't have all of that. But we have this light that says it starts. God's at work. God's at work through thousands of years of history. Zechariah goes back 2,000 years from where he sits. And he's looking back further than that. You know, we're almost the same distance forward from Zechariah. When we look back to Christmas and what God's done in the world through Jesus, we're looking back through 2,000 years. And sometimes we go, and... You know, it's still a mess. Yeah. But God's at work. God was at work that whole time. He's at work now. And his number one goal is not to fix the problem that's in my life. It's to fix me. His number one goal is not to make everything tidy. It's to bring me into right relationship because that's where everything went south. That's when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden and everything went bad at that point. Because the relationship was destroyed. And, and Zechariah, in the midst of this amazing moment of here's my child, has this, this, this clarity that says, wow, God's changing everything because he's changing us. And son, you get to go be a part of that. And I'm really excited, but I'm even more excited about what God is doing. And as we, as we worship this Christmas... I don't know what kind of state your life's in. Maybe kind of a mess. You may be really struggling or hurting or frustrated. You may be pretty disappointed and wrestling. And you just want God to get you out of it. If you know what I want for Christmas, God, is 
you would change this thing. That may not be what you need. And what I am praying for myself is I'd be a little bit more like Zechariah. That I'd be able to back up and see my life top down and say, okay, God, you know what I want. I want all the enemies to go away and I want everything to be nice. But you know what's the biggest need is that it would start with forgiveness, heart change, start in me, not my circumstances. So here I am. And if you want to strike me silent for nine months, the first words out of my mouth aren't going to be a complaint. They're going to be praise. And if you give me this great blessing, I'm not going to be so hung up on the blessing that I'm strutting around talking about my boy. I'm going to be talking about my God. Because I want to see my life in the context of what you're doing. Because that's really glorious. And I don't understand all of it. I don't understand why it's so hard sometimes. But I see your hand. And I just want to be a part of that. Zechariah and Elizabeth were very mature and godly people. And then they grew some more. My prayer is to be the same. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, um, There's a, big, there's a big story you're writing. You're doing great things in this world. And what's right in front of us, it may not be so great. We may not like it so much. Would you help us to see life from the top down and trust you? Lord, I, I know you had a unique role for Zechariah and Elizabeth. That's not ours, and I, I wouldn't pretend that it is. But you have things that you're doing in us and through us as your children. Your cosmic plan works its way out through ordinary people like us. And sometimes that puts us in great places and sometimes that puts us in hard places and sometimes we get to celebrate and sometimes we just have to sit in utter silence because we don't have any options. But Lord, in all of that, may we see your hand. May we, may we grab hold of the bigger reality that you're at work in this world and that Jesus came to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. And that's what we need. We need you to change us. May we worship you as those who experience that grace. And may we share that grace with others. In Jesus' name, amen.